Welcome to Building Tomorrow, a show about the ways tech and innovation are making the world a better place. Uh, Today, that means we're talking about scooters. 2018 was kind of the year of the scooter. Scooter startups like Bird and Lime and half a dozen others raised more than a billion dollars in venture capital. If you live in the city, uh, like I do, at least part of the week... Will and Jennifer do. Uh, you probably noticed those brightly colored scooters popping up on a sidewalk near you, or maybe stranded in a bush or on top of a garbage can <laughs> haphazardly about. Our topic today, just how big of a deal are scooters as a means of disrupting our transportation network, or is it more hype than substance? As always, I'm your host, Paul Matsko, and I'm here with Will Duffield, uh, editor of Prototype. We are joined in the studio by Jennifer Huddleston Skies, a research fellow at the Mercatus Center, coming all the way across the river from George Mason University. Welcome to the show, Jennifer. Thanks for having me today, Paul and Will. Now, Jennifer, you've written quite a few articles on scooters for Mercatus and then some other publications over the past year. Why don't you lay out for us, what's the basic argument for why scooters are a good disruptive technology? Well, I think it's what we've seen in a lot of different transportation innovation. We've seen entrepreneurs see a problem and come up with a creative solution to solve it. In this case, taking what a device that was primarily a toy in a lot of cases and making it a viable option for transportation, particularly for what in cities a lot of times we refer to as the last mile problem. So if you're in an urban area or even a suburban area, A lot of times there's a gap between where you can get on a car or in public transit and where you really need to go. So these entrepreneurs have found a fun and and healthy way for people to kind of solve that gap between where public transit may end and where they need to get like a grocery store or a school. Mm. So we're talking about, you know, let's say you're, you're planning on taking the metro or the subway into the city. But the problem is, okay, I have to get to the subway stop. If I drive and have to park in a gigantic parking lot, you know, uh, and then walk quite a distance so it's easier, that's that's the first mile problem. And then when I get off the metro, I have to get from the metro stop to my office building, and that's the the last mile problem, right? So scooters are are supposed to be filling that – those two gaps on either end. So less driving, I guess, is ultimately less driving, less walking. Less driving and and less walking, particularly for people that maybe that walk is a little bit long. So, for example, I have friends that may live a mile and a half from the office. And that's a decent walk, particularly if you're carrying all your stuff with you for, for work. But the nearest bus stop or metro station is also half a mile away. So with the scooters and dockless bikes and other micromobility options that we're starting to see pop up, it gives you a way to either cover that full mile and a half, two miles, or to get that half mile to the nearest transportation stop or from the nearest transportation stop. And compared to most traditional forms of last mile transit, these aren't individually owned devices. Right. So this has really been another example of the sharing economy, things that started with Uber, Lyft, Airbnb, companies that have almost become household names at this point. We're seeing these new companies come in and deploy scooters because people might not have the need to fully own a scooter for that first mile, last mile problem, but on a particular day may find it useful depending on their needs. And certainly other transit riders, I think, uh, would rather that their fellow riders not carry scooters and bicycles with them throughout the entirety of their commute. 
2018 has been a tremendous, I guess, uh, bumper year for for scooters. Why have we seen them emerge now in this sense? Obviously, we've had cell phones for a while. Razor scooters were a hip thing in, I guess, the late 90s, early aughts. Um, The tech's not new, right? Yeah. Right. And and so what you kind of have is a perfect combination of evasive entrepreneurs seeing a consumer need, particularly in these urban areas, and finding a way to use technology to solve that need. So it's really just been a case of the right entrepreneurs and the right technology coming together and consumers responding very well to it. So when Bird first launched in Santa Monica, uh, they had over 60,000 miles ridden, I think it was in the first month uh, hmm. before before the scooters got impounded the first time. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't help, yeah. <laughs> um, but you've really seen that when, when these things launch, they're incredibly popular, both as a form of transit and just as a form of tourism and people enjoying them as a new way to see the city. You certainly see that use in D.C. a lot. And it actually what it reminds me of, and we, and we can flesh this out in a bit, it reminds me of, um, at least in its D.C. use of bike shares, right, where you have stands and the bikes are locked into, the, into them and you use your your phone, an app on your phone, you unlock the bike, and then you tool around the city looking at the historic historic monuments and museums. And you're seeing scooters kind of replace some of that bike use by tourists in D.C. Well, they're dockless as well. But they're dockless, right. So you're not stuck to certain hubs. And that's been one of the real advantages of these kind of micromobility devices in general. And when I say micromobility, I'm using it to refer to the broader transportation innovation we're seeing not just with these electric scooters, but also with dockless bike shares, with electric bikes, and even with things like dockless mopeds that are starting to pop up some places. Um, so you're seeing a wider variety of things because one of the problems with those docked bike shares is they don't necessarily truly solve that first mile, last mile mm. problem. Because maybe it's near your work of, you know, work of, you know, your house or your uh, workplace. Maybe it's not. Right. And especially, you know, I know in on the Virginia side, as we were talking about earlier, a lot of times they're close to metro stations. And so going from metro station to metro station doesn't necessarily solve yeah. a problem. Yeah. That's a good point. Well, and you also, they have the advantage, I imagine, the upfront capital costs of a scoot- scooter. My my understanding is they typically run between like four and $600 per scooter. That's less, I bet you, than a one of those bikes. I don't have specific numbers, but a new bike for one of those docks, they're pretty hefty things. The docks themselves are expensive. I mean, the upfront capital costs are larger. So well, you have and, to. And the docks are going to have a set vendor that repairs and services docked bikes and therefore doesn't lead to or drive the kind of very interesting cultural forms mm-hmm. we've seen arise around particularly dockless scooters. Um, There's an article back in May in The Atlantic by Taylor Lawrence discussing the teenage bird charging culture of young people who see these as effectively natural scavenger hunts. It's nice to make a little bit of money charging the birds, but it's also fun to have an excuse to take your mom's minivan out with your friends hunting for <laughs> some randomly distributed set of objects across your town. Um, I know I've looked at scooter talk forums, which uh, generally see the more professional 
um, bird chargers or scooter chargers there looking for ways in which they can sometimes trick the system to make more money, hoarding scooters <laughs> until the uh, bounties for charging them go up. Um, but all of these things seem fairly novel. Have you seen the video? There was a video on uh, YouTube that went viral a couple months ago. Someone had just all these scooters lined up in their living room charging, and one of them caught fire quite dramatically. Because you know, anytime you have a high-capacity ca battery, you know, it's like every now and again a, your iPhone battery will explode. I mean – not yours, but a iPhone battery will explode or your vape pen, the the poor dude who got killed by his jewel. Um, so watch out, Will. Uh, but I mean, it was the, the battery explodes in his living room and then that causes the other batteries to cook off. Anyways, it's quite a dramatic. <laughs> this is not, I think, a normal event per se. But uh, but anyways, to your point, I, there was something interesting. Uh, one of the criticisms uh, of not of scooters per se, but of them as a feasible option uh, that I read was that uh, so any kind of new transportation uh, development is going to get pushback. We saw this with Uber and Lyft, right? You, um, they're trying to in you know effectively lower the car ownership rate in urban centers. People drive less of their own vehicle. They'll more efficiently share vehicles than everyone owning their individual vehicle, right? Well, there's been pushback from like taxi cab medallion holders and, and city centers and the like, but Uber drivers and Lyft drivers are themselves a constituency. There's a lot of them. So it gives you the kind of political capital to push back against that kind of regulatory backlash. Um, but someone noted that part of the problem with uh, scooters is that there is no there is no driver. The only real constituency, the dedicated constituency are the people who charge them. But they tend to skew – I mean, so you think about – they tend to skew like, young people. It's folks who are politically marginal. And so their argument was that this is going – they're going to have a hard time resisting that regulatory backlash because of that. At, at least when it comes to cab drivers in a sense, Uber drivers, there are forms of industrial organization that they can fall back upon that have been pioneered um, with relation to – yeah. You know, any any kind of driver, hailed service, whatever. Charging scooters is is different. I think, um, yeah, I think it's kind of interesting because there are two ways to look at this. Uh, the one way is that there isn't this kind of constituency in terms of entrepreneurs yet, although there are a lot of people who enjoy doing this, you know, especially with the growing number of millennials taking on different side hustles type of thing. As you mentioned, it's a quick, easy way to, to earn a little bit of money, but very few people are actually being a full-time scooter charger right. as their job the way they might be an Uber or Lyft driver. On the other hand, you don't have that built-in incumbent mm -hmm. the way you did with the taxi cab companies, Good with point. Uber and Lyft either. What's been interesting from a regulatory standpoint is in some ways it seems like what some cities learned from kind of the Uber, Lyft, and early transportation innovation sharing economy um, fights was, you know, consumers want this. We want this is good for the city in the end. More competition makes everything better. Let's work with the innovators and find ways that we can have these new transportation innovations take off in our cities. 
In other cases, it seems like what they learned was we didn't come down on Uber and lift hard enough. We <laughs> yeah, need to yeah. nip this in the bud. And the good news is we can pick these up off the street and impound them yeah. until they come ask us for them. And the, the same sort of labor rights justifications or concerns regarding exploitation that we may see with Uber or Lyft don't seem to exist um, with scooters. The scooters themselves right. are purchased using venture capital money, wisely spent or not. Um, Basically all from China, too. But yeah. the the chargers themselves certainly aren't – can't be seen as anything other than contractors um, in a way that people have argued Uber drivers are employees of, of Uber. Um, and the chargers aren't taking on the capital cost of a new vehicle to drive people around in in the same way. Um, so really the only – hook I've seen has been some kind of public health concern that people are injuring themselves speeding around on these things. And yeah. it's a much weaker argument it without is. that is. sort of constituency. Which is, is something that you see a lot whenever there's any kind of form of new transportation innovation. One of my favorite things to do now is to take old headlines about bicycles and just <laughs> put scooter where <laughs> bicycle oh, is. Fun. So if yeah. you take like the 1800 and 1900 headlines about the menace of bicycles in Central Park and replace it with scooters, it almost reads like a similar debate we're having now. That's not to say that there haven't been some unfortunate accidents and that there aren't ever any safety concerns or anything, but we have these same safety concerns with bicycles. And so similarly, a lot of it comes down to education and these are a very new technology in most places. So Drivers might not be used to looking for scooters yet. Uh, scooter riders might not know where they're supposed to ride them in certain areas. And so educating both riders of these devices and drivers, you know, kind of like with motorcycles of the look twice type of campaigns are certainly things that could help address some of these safety concerns. There's a on that point about where you can ride them. I, I was struck um by this thought, which is that scooters have a kind of advantage in that they fall into a regulatory kind of gray area, which is that because it's kind of brand new. I mean, since scooters before this were just the thing kids played with in their, you know, on their driveway, it wasn't thought of as transportation in the current sense. And so, like, there's a there's a whole body of kind of regulatory precedent for dealing with motorcycles as vehicular traffic and the body of, of regulations regarding bicycles. But scooters are kind of neither. They're not really well-defined. And so, like, in in D.C., most of D.C., you can ride your scooter on the sidewalk, but not your bicycle, which is bizarre, except in downtown D.C., where you have to ride your scooter in the downtown district. You have to ride it on the road, though I'm sure it's not it, really enforced. It's not just regulation either. It's norms. Mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm. I I don't know how I should feel about someone whizzing past me on the sidewalk on a scooter, whereas at this point, if someone does that on a bicycle, I see them as being a bit rude. Yeah, um, yeah. But also with uh, to the norms point, a lot of this goes to we've had bicycles for a lot longer. And, you know, if you see somebody whiz by you on a bicycle on a sidewalk and there's a perfectly good bike lane right there, you're going to be like you're being a jerk. On the other hand, if it's, you know, someone in a quiet neighborhood and there's four lanes of traffic going 20 miles or 
40 miles an hour and they're on out on a Sunday stroll, you're going to be like, this is probably safer for everyone (laughs) if you're on the sidewalk. And so we've had those norms kind of develop where while the law may say you're supposed to always ride a bicycle in the street, if it's your neighbor's eight-year-old, you're probably not going to be out there enforcing that regulation. And and from a safety standpoint as well, you just need to keep the, the relative danger of other modes of transportation in mind. Every mile that's being driven on a, with a scooter rather than a car is a much safer mile for pedestrians. Um, someone had quipped that the main problem with scooters is that everyone struck by them will live to tell the tale and complain about scooters going forward. (laughs) If that happens to you with a car, you won't be complaining. Silver lining for car companies. Well, and I think back to a comment you made earlier about this regulatory gray area, this is kind of one of the next policy questions if this is to really take off as transportation. In a lot of the states and cities where these have been deployed, They've been able to deploy because existing regulations allowed that kind of entrepreneurship. Unfortunately, some states so narrowly define motorcycle or various other transportation that they can't be deployed there because they would have to have individual license plates be registered with Hmm. the state. Um, So this is kind of an interesting area where if states want transportation innovation to continue, whether it's scooters or whether it's driverless cars, really looking at those regulatory frameworks to make sure that you aren't getting in the way of that next phase of innovation. It does seem uh, it's encouraging that you've seen quite a variety of responses. So everything from I think like San Francisco, they impound bicycles and uh, there's been pushback in in certain cities, but there's other places. um, I think some some Texas cities have, have actually been quite welcoming um, and, and usually, even the welcoming city councils uh, appreciate a nod, like, hey, tell us you're coming. Don't just drop the bicycles um, on the streets without letting us know. Give us like 30 days or a pilot program or something. But you're seeing a, a level of cooperation um, from quite a few cities that I think is – and that's intentional. I was When I was out at uh, TechCrunch Disrupt last year, uh, they had Lime's – I think it was Lime's CEO came and gave a talk and basically said – Look, we've learned from Uber that yes, it's great to you know move fast and break things, and easier to ask uh, forgiveness instead of permission. But when it comes to scooters, we're having more success going to city councils and working with them before we roll out. That's actually been a more successful strategy than doing the kind of Uber style approach. It raises interesting questions about how we negotiate the boundaries of public space, how conceptions of public space change over time, because obviously there's some people who, for them, the sidewalk is for walking. And when a private company is able to dump a bunch of its products literally in the street in front of them, um, there's a question as to whether they or some general concept of the public is being compensated for that, whether the utility gains of simply having the scooters ought to outweigh any concerns that way. Yeah. But um, I mean, Well, and I think it's interesting you bring that up because it goes back to the norms question as well. And every city has kind of different norms about what this space is for. And so having that local knowledge to be able to have a successful deployment is useful 
as well. And, you know, we've seen some interesting things, including like taking one parking place and kind of painting it a certain color as a sign that that's where you should park the scooters in that area. Mm-hmm. That saves, you know, you may lose one parking space, but you're able to park 10 scooters there and clear the sidewalk and and s- signal to people that that's an option. A small step towards ameliorating the horrific legacy of minimum parking requirements. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, and, and to your – again, on norms, we've talked about this with cell phones. When cell phones first came out, people were – didn't know what the social norms were re- governing their use. So the phenomenon of the person talking loudly on their phone and everyone getting pissed off at them, that was that was a thing. It's a thing in movies. It's a thing in TV. It's mostly gone away now, a decade on. Like, because they text. Because <laughs> people text, but also folks are more aware of the social norms, how you should use your phone, in what context, in what ways. We're all just more used to it. And the same thing can be true of scooters. Yes, it's super annoying to some people when they see a scooter lying on its side, like in the front of a store door. Understandably so. But this is something, a, a, a polite norm that has to develop and can develop, right? And people can learn, just like people learn, you have trash and there's a trash can, you throw it away. You can, People can learn this. You know, there's a cultural educational process. Now, from a from an economic standpoint, how viable are these business models? How are these firms doing? Um, you know, is are they living up to the hype, uh, particularly the hype of last spring when it was much warmer and you might want to ride a scooter? Well, I tend to fo- – my training's as a lawyer, so I tend to focus on it more from the legal yeah. and regulatory framework side. So I don't necessarily know the ins and outs of the business models. As you mentioned the, earlier, there has been quite a bit of investment, and so that's kind of the next question. We have seen decreases in ridership given cold weather recently, particularly in the Northeast and in the Pacific Northwest. When you look at, at news stories or at data that the companies may release themselves. But at the same time, it hasn't gone down to zero in a lot of cases. Um, you know, we still see them out on 20 degree days here. We, you know, there were pictures of them in the snow in the Northwest this week with that storm. So I think that it'll be interesting to see how many companies survive in the market, what is kind of that optimal number. And it may vary from city to city and region to region. Well, and it's, it wouldn't be surprising. My, my understanding of the of the numbers is that uh, Burden Lime rideshare dropped by over half in November and December combined. Um, after growth rates during the early part of the year that were you know it was du- doubling per month in terms of rides, I and mean, it was quite a rapid. So, but it does decline the winter. But in the north and essentially places like San Diego. Uh, places in Texas, rideshare didn't decline at all during November, December. But is that really so surprising? I mean, there's all kinds of modes of transportation that flourish in warmer southern cities that don't yeah, in the north and vice versa. People no one's rollerblade in yeah. California. I don't see that Miami here. There and, isn't a yeah. culture of it. <laughs> and people um, ride snowmobiles in Maine and Minnesota and they don't down south. That That's fine. I mean, even if even if it's an incremental benefit – in the southern half of the United States, that's that's great. Why not? Well, and I think that goes back to, in some ways, you know, it's not just about the scooters. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. The scooters are about what are we telling innovators and entrepreneurs about transportation being an 
area that you can innovate in. So, yes, we've seen the scooters kind of on a national urban scale, but it's possible that next phase may be dockless snowmobiles in Minnesota <laughs> and dockless rollerblades in Miami, you know, that, that you just change out or, or yeah. whatnot. So I think that letting entrepreneurs and innovators know whether or not the city reaction is going to be no, you have to constantly ask permission if you want to try something or yeah, if we're going yeah. to embrace that more permissionless culture that has really allowed America to be a leader in a lot of technological innovation. And ultimately, we're talking about um, a bunch of very wealthy venture capitalists spending a billion dollars trying to help or subsidizing tr a novel form of transportation for folks. Like, who's the, the loser here in this scenario? I mean, at the if end it, of the day, if it, if it fails, fails – yes. Wealthy people lost a billion dollars. Okay, I mean, and and I get free scooters. <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm very interested in the sort of recycling yeah. element of this, particularly mm. looking at firms that have failed and what happens to the scooters yeah. or bicycles afterwards. That inventory has to go somewhere. Yeah, yeah, but at least in in China with uh, Ofo, mm. most of the inventory seemed to go to landfills. Um, <laughs> you know, they had drone shots of just. Hundreds of Striking, thousands yeah. of bicycles in mountains yeah, um, yeah. seem disappointing. Which but. is a cautionary tale. I mean, so for our listeners who haven't uh, read up on bike. So Ofo is a bike sharing company in China. It was. Was. It's, well, it still kind of exists. It's in the throes, death throes at the moment. But it um, it had a valuation at $3 billion, raised a billion and a half. So this one company had more capital investment than the entire scooter industry in the United States. So it's a big deal, even if it's not wasn't an American firm really. Um, though they were exploring expanding here right before the end, but they they just they're they're they 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 were privileging growth over profits. They never were profitable, and so they heavily subsidized people you know using their bicycles. And they had a I think it was a dockless system as well. So it was bicycles but dockless. And ultimately, they just couldn't make money at least at the rate that they had borrowed money. And so now they're kaput. And so there's a cautionary tale there, which is maybe this won't work. But just like Ofo didn't work in China, which is a place that's the urban density is actually fewer people own cars. Urban density is higher than the U.S. So you, it's actually a kind of a better built infrastructure for bikes and scooters. So maybe this won't work. Maybe it's Lime or Bird or whatever will go the way of Ofo. But at the same time, there are bike share companies in China and in the rest of the world that are working and have made urban transportation cheaper, easier, uh, and more accessible for, for working people. And you can imagine a scenario which it's hard with this much money in the, this many uh, scooter startups that it won't leave at least some footprint. Maybe half of them will fail miserably. They'll flame out. Maybe they'll only survive in certain cities, southern cities, San Diego, Miami. But it's going to – it feels – it's hard to imagine it completely being a complete failure as an industry. Absolutely. And I think one of the interesting things that may make it a little bit different is that this is really part of a larger ecosystem um, in terms of transportation of I don't think in most cases people are only using scooters as their only form of transportation. You're seeing these used in conjunction with other forms of transit, be it public transportation, be it Uber and Lyft, be it a personal vehicle. I also think that you're seeing the companies 
both the scooter companies themselves as well as companies that have gotten into scooters diversifying their technology and going back to that this isn't just about the scooters this is about how is the future of transportation advancing so you have a company like Lyft that now does scooters as well as rideshare you have Lime that does bikes and scooters and is looking at getting into cars in some areas and so you're going to really see companies that may be able to change direction if something were to happen and this phenomenon just completely go away. I mean, I suppose the ideal is someday you have a, you, you have a single app and there will be competing apps, but you have a single uh, app where you can open it and you say, I want to get from here to here and uh, you, maybe you can put other con- conditions in or, or it automatically knows. It knows what the weather is, where you are. It takes all that into account. And it can say, well, you can either walk one minute and there's a scooter laying on the sidewalk, or you can wait five minutes and there'll be a, you know, an Uber or a Lyft there, you know, to pick you up. Or if you go over here, there's a bike rack, bike share. It all So in one central hub, there's a whole range of options and stuff that we haven't even thought of that's not yet delivered. Well, and we are starting to see this a little bit. So I believe it's City Mapper that now okay. puts different transit options into it. Um, Google Maps in some places has added Lime scooter availability as an option. And even in the Lyft app, in the cities that Lyft um, had scooters in, if you open the app, it'll have how close the nearest driver is, and then at the bottom, how close the nearest scooter is. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think there's an interesting tension there as well, in that everyone wants to be that do-all app. taking you all the way from point A to point B. But at the same time, the more you go for that, the less you maintain a competitive advantage in providing the best scooter service or the best right. uh, ride-sharing service or whatever it may be. Um, and that perhaps a great deal of this venture capital moving into all of these different firms is um, built on some set of, of expectations of them in the end being the dominant everything app as Uber seemed like it might become for a while. Absolutely. I mean, there's the natural interest in uh, vertical integration, essentially is what we're talking about, like, but treating the person as the product rather than a, a thing, right? But from factory to store, from door to door, you're going to, the, the, your whole chain of movement will be through us. Um, it, the, there is um, – so some of the tension from regulators uh, – so albeit there's no taxi medallion pushback against scooters or not not significant pushback. Um, there is some nimbyism. People just don't like scooters on their sidewalks. Uh, but I, what I have seen in terms of criticism has often come from urban transit, like mass transit, public transit advocates who don't like the scooters in the same sense they don't like Uber or Lyft. Um that seems odd to me. It feels like this is something they should be able and willing to work together with. Like it would be very natural if you opened your Metro app here in DC and that showed you where the scooter was. So you jump. I mean, that, that seems like a match made in heaven. Put it, scooter charging stations on city buses. You know, and yeah. it's, it's interesting too, because that is unfortunately one of the criticisms that we hear a lot is that these are going to somehow take the market share from public transit. Um, But at the same time, 
what we've actually seen is a lot of people use these to get to public transit, mm-hmm. especially in a city like D.C. where you may have what are called transit deserts, where the nearest public transportation stop, be it a bus stop or a um, metro stop, is is decently far away. It's not really or it's not in a really walkable area. This is providing a way for people to get to the public transportation I mean, and anywhere that I would be riding, in particular the subway, I think would be a long enough ride that I wouldn't be taking a scooter. Yeah. Um, I'd take the scooter afterwards. Yeah. But you're yeah. never going to see me trying to negotiate 95 going between Pentagon City <laughs> and D.C. on one of those bird like scooters. Like You'll find me in the world. Potomac. <laughs> Um, <laughs> Especially with the 10-mile-an-hour uh, speed limit now. <laughs> How has that been imposed? So the, it, some cities, out of safety concerns, have started to impose speed limits on these devices that are lower than what they were going. What's been interesting is, in some ways, those could actually make it less safe. Um, if you think about a 10-mile-an-hour speed limit – that's slower than a bicycle may be going. And so if you're sharing a bike lane, now you could have... Let alone uh, traffic. Right. And say, let alone traffic. And then you add in that you're reducing the practical options of these. As as you slow them down, what people like is that it's a quicker alternative to get from point A to point B. You may be decreasing that ability. Have you seen any pushback from firms there? Because... What strikes me as interesting about the the way in which these speed limits have been imposed is that they're they're in app, right? Right. The scooter physically won't go more than ten miles an hour. It's not like you can be ticketed um, if you drive your car faster than the posted speed limit. And that, I mean, it seems like a far more effective and therefore worrisome form of speed control enforcement. Frankly. Um, so if the companies just rolled over on this or – I think some of the re- – it, it, we're seeing a lot of variety in terms of what that speed limit is. Like I said, 10 miles an hour in the DMV seems to be a, a pretty common one. I think that some of it is the the figuring out where to push and where to pull on, on these regulations. And I would – I don't necessarily know of of the companies fighting them, but beyond the general regulations that they've fought before. Because that's the the city requiring a a change in your product, not just policing how people use it. And you would think that that also then would make certain cities less lucrative to to newer startups. So if I know that I'm going to have to develop a special app or change the software for DC and now I can't just launch my product and – Every city, I have to have a DC speed limit, and you know, a Santa Monica speed limit, and a Chicago speed limit, or whatever. Then, you know, it becomes a lot more difficult to do at scale. Well, and we can. I mean, it's worth bearing in mind this is a very new industry. I mean, right. it really isn't until the spring of last year that you're seeing scooters pop up in large numbers on on city streets. It's less than a year old, and um, I, I think one hopeful thought is that. While this, like Uber and Lyft, is an example of the sharing economy, um, and there are some, there are certain similarities to both forms of transportation, obviously, and the like. There is one big key difference, uh, which is that Uber and Lyft, and uh, in, in general, here at Building Tomorrow, we love Uber and Lyft. We love disruption. We like more competition, uh, unsurprisingly. But Uber and Lyft, um, 
they, if you're a mass transit proponent, they have shifted more people from buses in particular and metros into back into cars. So if you're concerned about the health of mass transit, I understand why you find that problematic, even if I ultimately think it's worth it to do that. Um, but with scooters, as, as we've been talking, as Will's mentioned here, it doesn't seem to have that effect. Like it, it should work well with mass transit. So if your concern is, oh, no, these new transportation innovations are stealing people from from the metro system or the bus system, so you should be very pro scooter. And imagine applications, like you said, Will, charging your scooter, having Lime scooters attached to buses. And the city can make, raise revenue that way by leasing out bus space for scooter charging or having you know designated recharge sites near metro stops. It's both a chance for cities to raise revenue and draw people back to using public transit. And I think that's an interesting question, too, of in a lot of ways, this could be it's a way of getting more people to use public transit and more people to be able to consider a car-free lifestyle of, yeah, yeah. again, when it's dockless, it's easier to find one than having to go to that designated capital bike share docked rack that may or may not be convenient with yeah. where you are. And so you can find a dockless device, take it to the metro or the bus stop and leave it there, not have to worry about where's the nearest dock station or mm-hmm, mm-hmm. how far am I and Am I going to have to drive and find parking at this location? So if anything, I think that, it, like I said, they work together, not in opposition yeah. to each other. Well, I'd love it. Uh, every time I go to Aldi's – are you Aldi's people? Go to Aldi's? Every time I go to Aldi's, the, I love the fact that you paid the quarter and you get your own cart, both because of the – I mean, it allows them to charge less for the products, sure. But I also like the idea of – some random German person, because that's all these is ultimately German. You know, it's under Lidl and it's a German company, whatever. Um, some random German person said, "You know what? In America, they get, they pay people to take their carts back to the store for for them, but that's not very efficient. How about if we in- incentivize using market mechanisms a quarter to yeah a bond, the twenty five cent bond to get people to do that themselves? Everyone wins. It's a more efficient way of organizing." society organizing grocery shopping like only because, because all these products are actually cheaper you're incentivizing good behavior it's good design that thinks about the market and human behavior and like you can imagine the same thing with scooters so imagine if yes you can leave the scooter anywhere you want but we'll give you a rebate if you leave it at a dock near the metro stop or on the bus well, you don't have to. What we've seen so far is less of a we'll give you a rebate for good scooter behavior and more of a we've started to see companies instituting fines for bad scooter oh, behavior. So taking it outside of the zone that it's supposed to be in or you get an extra fee or something, you know, okay. not leaving it in an appropriate place or some kind of vandalism or damage to the scooter that goes back to the rider, they can charge a fee to the rider via the app the same way that we've seen when there have been bad behavior in other sharing economy, be it, you know, a, a bad passenger in an Uber or Lyft or someone causing property destruction in an Airbnb, they're able to institute a fine and fee system that mm-hmm. can address some what, of the, uh, the, those those sorts of adjudication processes often concern me. Um, because often at that point the company has access to your bank account and is the final arbiter of their own case. Yeah. Um, have we seen anything, any novel developments in um, 
adjudicating those sorts of disputes? Not yet, but I think you bring up a really good point, and that's kind of one of the next questions that will have to be answered, not just for scooters, but for the sharing economy more generally. Um, it's also we're going to ha- see different private businesses taking different approaches. I, George Mason uh, banned scooters from their campus. Uh. Um, (laughs) But other places, you know, may say, but it's interesting because it's not necessarily a ban in the way you would think of it. Um, The Mercatus Center is located on the Arlington campus of George Mason. And if I go out, there's just a sign that's like, please don't leave scooters here. (laughs) Um, And so like everyone parks them around the corner instead of like right in front of the law school door. (laughs) Yeah. So there's a It'll be interest, interesting to see. I mean, as it matures as an industry, well, it's more than a year old, we'll, we'll see which – like the effects of various city regulations, places that limit it to 10 miles an hour or places that only allow 1,000 scooters on the streets. We'll start to be able to get some data to see how that affects the scooter industry as a whole, um, how places with a lighter touch regulation, how that – you know, how it affects – transportation patterns of, of, you know, ordinary commuters. Like there's going to be a wealth of information. 2018 may have been the year of the scooter in terms of its launch, but 2019 going forward should be the year where we actually get good data about how this looks in practice. We can start pushing for here's the model in this city that works really well and has helped benefit the city in this, 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 and this ways. Right. Absolutely. And I think it'll also be interesting to see what this signals for broader transportation policy heading forward. Mm, If nothing mm -hmm. else, you know, the approach of we're going to see new transportation innovation and we need to be ready for it. Things that started with Uber and Lyft and have now gone to scooters and dockless bikes and, you know, hopefully we'll soon end up with driverless cars and VTOL in the the system uh, on top of it. Cities can no longer assume that we're operating in 20th century transportation mode. Their their city planners, transit authorities are going to have to start to take into account various forms of transportation. And we're on the verge of the biggest renaissance that we've probably seen in 100 years. Yeah. I'm not sure. It's it's simultaneously a little bit – it's exciting but also a little bit depressing. I mean if we can't handle scooters, how are we going to in a regulatory sense handle – you know, vertical takeoff and lift, you know, personal aircraft. How are we going to handle all these other driverless cars, bigger deals with even greater impacts? So, yes, I mean, it's both encouraging. Particularly that- as cities become more and more important in driving economic growth, yeah. you know, the, the city's problems in making cities work um, becomes a larger scale issue with ever broader impact. We should do a, we should do like a future of the city episode sometime. That'd be fun. Um, I think that's all we have time for today. So uh, Jennifer, thank you so much for coming in and joining us. Thank you for having me. And until next week, be well. Thanks for listening. Building Tomorrow is produced by Tess Terrible. If you enjoy Building Tomorrow, please subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, find us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.